Good morning. My name is Stuart McCray. I have the joy of serving on staff as one of the pastors. We're going to be continuing where we left off last Sunday in Isaiah, and we're going to be starting at the beginning of chapter 41, looking at verses 1 through 20. So Isaiah 41, 1 through 20. So if you'll flip there, scroll there, that is where we're going to spend our time this morning. Through prophecy, Isaiah is looking out into the future when God's people are in exile in Babylon, and he intends to give them words of comfort and hope. Living in exile, living in this broken world, we just face all kinds of trouble, don't we? Maybe it's the sudden loss of a job. Maybe it's a pregnancy in crisis. Maybe it's the unexpected medical diagnosis. Maybe it's the unexpected large bill, something happening nationally or globally. The list goes on, and no matter what, troubling, uh, troubling situations can often bring with them fear and anxiety, pressing us into the proverbial corner with few options for where to turn for escape. And fear and anxiety might seem like the normal and maybe reasonable response, but God tells his people that more often than not, these responses are actually born out of a lack of trusting in him. If you can relate to being pressed into the corner, God has a word for you this morning. In Isaiah 41, 1 through 20, here, here's the big idea. God tells us there are two places we can turn when facing situations that tempt us toward fear and anxiety. We can turn to false refuges or we can turn to God. Now, God isn't saying that we can't use practical means to try to resolve our troubles. I mean, if you can do that, you'd be a fool not to. I mean, when God's people eventually do return from exile and they are building the walls in Jerusalem, Nehemiah has half of the folks on guard and half of them building while all of them are saying, well, our God will fight for us. But here's the deal. Changing our external situations won't also change our inner hearts. I mean, think of it like this. God could have brought his people out of exile and promised them nothing more. But just ending their physical exile would have never put an end to their sin, which put them into exile to begin with. They would have been brought back unchanged and no hope for change. If we're going to experience real heart change, if we're going to experience peace instead of fear, we must turn to God. And it's never easy, so in our passage, God contends for us to trust in him and not in false refuges. So here we go. We're going to look at our passage. We're going to start with verse 1. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Then let them speak. Let us draw together. Let us draw near for judgment. So with Isaiah prophesying out into the future with God's people in exile in Babylon, being immersed in and amongst Gentiles, what we start to see here in this second half of Isaiah is that God starts speaking to Gentiles. And that's what's going on here. God is graciously engaging with those who are not his covenant people, calling them to account for their idolatry. 
God desires the nations to come to him and be saved. And that's an amen. Most of us here are not ethnic Jews. That means this is us. God graciously is addressing folks like you and me. Going all the way back to Abraham, God has a plan. He has had a plan for the nations to be a part of his people. And God is graciously challenging the nations to decide something. And, and the clue is in the line, let the people renew their strength. This is a, a, this is a direct echo from Isaiah 40, 31 that we looked at last Sunday, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Like Judah and Israel, the surrounding nations have seen destruction happen through war. And like Judah and Israel, the, the nations are fearful and expecting more to come. And so will they exchange their weakness for Yahweh's strength? Will they turn to Yahweh or will they turn to their traditional gods? Let's keep reading verse two. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tremples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust for his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, Yahweh the first and with the last, I am he. History does not unfold by a what, but by a who. And the answer to who causes the world's history is found in verse four. I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he, the events of human history do not unfold by chance, they unfold by God and his providence. That said, there is someone else who's mentioned here, second sentence in verse two says, he, that's God, gives up nations before him. And then so on for the rest of verse two and three. The, the him is Cyrus, the great Persian emperor. But in comparison to God and his role on the world's stage, Cyrus is a background actor. So insignificant to the cause of world's events that he's just not even mentioned here in our passage. God is the main actor in world history. God is always the main character in my story and in your story and in the story of redemption of the Bible. God is always center stage. Nevertheless, God uses Cyrus to conquer Babylon and to liberate his people. But while Cyrus advances triumphantly, our gaze is directed to God's greater providence. Yahweh, Israel's God, is the cause of world history. And God wants the nations to know that so that they will turn to him and exchange their weakness for his strength. So how will they respond? Starting with verse five. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he who smooths with the hammer him, who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it's good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be Moved As the nations see history unfold, they are afraid. 
but sadly they turn to each other to find strength and they build idols with their own hands for help. All of us, all of us face fear and anxiety producing situations that press us into the corner, asking us where will we turn to find hope, comfort, security, peace. The, the, the temptation is to, to turn to false refuges. Now, I get it, none of us are creating handmade idols. Nevertheless, the question is, when fear and anxiety set in, what false refuge are you tempted to turn to for relief? Maybe it's doubling down in your own efforts or the distraction tactics of binge watching TV or, or getting absorbed by friends. Maybe it's just getting lost in busyness or it's scrolling through social media. Maybe it's turning to a trusted news outlet or flipping through Amazon to find that next relieving purchase. Brothers and sisters, there is no lasting peace found outside the sovereign care of our heavenly father. Only God's peace is described as that which surpasses all understanding and will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now maybe you're here this morning and you are wrestling with, is the God of the Bible the one who causes history to happen? Or is this all just by chance and by human activity alone? If that's you, I'm so glad that you are here this morning. It is wonderful that you are here. And however you found yourself here, I wanna to suggest to you that just like, similar to the way that God was addressing the, the nations, trying to compel them to come to him, that God is addressing you this morning. That God is pushing you into the corner and challenging you, where will you turn when trouble comes? And, and here's what I'll say, and I think I can say this for every believer here, the testimonies this morning were a witness to this, but there is great meaning and purpose in this life because of God, the God of the Bible. True meaning, full purpose, the forgiveness of sins, the hope for real change, an eternity worth living for is all found in being loved by Jesus and loving Jesus. Well, when facing fearful situations, we can turn to false refuges or we can turn to God. And that's what we see here in verses eight through 20. In verses eight through 20, in fact, we see three, three commitments that God has made to his people. See, God's people have seen the same events unfold and, and they're tempted toward fear as well. But unlike those who are not trusting in God, they don't have to be afraid. God eagerly wants his people to draw strength from him. And so he makes commitments to them so that they know what they can expect from him so they'll be encouraged to turn to him. The first commitment is found in verses eight through 13. Let's read starting with verse eight. 
But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying, you are my servant I have chosen and I have not cast off. Fear not, because I am with you. Be not dismayed, because I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Here it is. God has ultimately committed himself to us, so we don't have to be afraid. First, God tells his people who they are to him. In verses eight through nine, God's people are described as chosen, claimed, you whom I took, and kept. I have not cast you off. They're his treasured possession. None of these earned. They are all these things to God because of God. Each expressions of God's sovereign grace and mercy toward his people. And God's chosen, claimed, and kept people need not fear because their personal God, the one who did it all and is in control of all things, is with them. And he's with them, not just merely in the foxhole, but he's with them to gift his people his strength, his help, and his perfect support. He gives them all of himself. There's more. Verses 11 through 13. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. Because I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand, and it is I who say, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Listen, when we live for God, we will experience trouble. Maybe it's people sinning against you. Maybe it's because of your own sin, or, or maybe it's simply just because we live in brokenness. But no matter what it is, God says that there will be a day when we will look around for our trouble and trouble will not be found. Oh, the sweet and precious promise, I am with you. Our God will never leave us or forsake us, but always be personally with us. And, and yet when facing trouble, if you can relate to my experience, yet when facing trouble, it can be tempting to think, God must be far off. I mean, this wouldn't be happening if he was near, but in our trouble, God's whereabouts are known. Psalm 46, one through two tells us about who God is in times of trouble. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, because of who he is in times of trouble, therefore we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, God is a very present help, our refuge, our strength in times of trouble. God has committed himself to his chosen, 
claimed and kept people. We don't have to fear, even when it seems like the earth is giving way underneath of us. And indeed, we too can look around and see that our greatest enemies have already been put to shame. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says, you who were dead, if you are trusting in Jesus, this is you. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses, here's how, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Sin has been defeated. He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. Satan has been defeated. Because of Jesus, we battle already defeated enemies. The presence remains, but the power has been broken. Let's trust in him. Let's press on in faith and not be afraid of the troubles we face. The second commitment is found in verses 14 through 16. Let's, let's read them. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I'm the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like shaft. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. Simply put, our Redeemer has committed to conquering every obstacle in our way to enjoying Him. Again, here's the exhortation, fear not. God's people feel like weak and insignificant worms, unable, helpless to remedy their troubles. But God isn't. God is their personal God, and he himself will help them. Your redeemer, God says of himself, the one who buys them back at a great personal cost. And, and here's the thing about a redeemer, you could only redeem those who were in your family. You, you, you couldn't redeem your best friend or your closest coworker or the neighbor that lived next to you. It had to be family. But there's more, not just family. The redeemer had to be willing to make your debts and your troubles his responsibility. And God the Father sovereignly and graciously chooses to be their redeemer. And fast forward to this side of the cross, and brothers and sisters, we know where our redemption is found. It is found in the, in the redeeming life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, Hebrews 12, 11. What's more, take note, it's not the redeemed themselves who conquer every obstacle. They're just tools in the farmer's hands. The redeemer promises to transform his weak people into a new and powerful threshing sledge. And in his hands, they will 
overcome every obstacle to everlasting worship of him. I think the, the, the echo of these verses carries all the way forward to Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? In other words, what, what obstacle, obstacles can get in our way to love and worship Jesus? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, this is Psalm 40, uh, 44, 22. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul says, because I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things that come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All redeemed people of God, know this, whatever obstacle is in your way to enjoying and worshiping God in Christ Jesus, your Redeemer has committed to conquering them all. The third and final commitment that God has made to his people is found in verses 17 through 20. Let's read them. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set in the desert, the cypress, the plain and the pine together that, and here's the purpose in God doing all of this, that they may see, know, may consider and understand together the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created. Here it is. God has committed to impossibly supplying our every need so that we will unmistakably see his all-providing hand. The, the powerful image of a drought-stricken land with people desperately seeking life-giving water represents both a literal and spiritual reality. Literally, the poor are crushed under the weight of injustice and the needy are helpless to remedy their situation. God's people are utterly broken under the desolation of exile. Spiritually speaking, they're also in need of a refreshment that their souls cannot produce. They are, as Ezekiel says, dry, dead bones. They're in need of God's help. And poetically, they're seen as crying out to him. That's why God responds, I, the Lord, will answer them. And in verses 18 through 19, we poetically see God will impossibly sustain his people in whatever circumstance they face and refresh them in whatever condition they're in. Not only are they hearing of the end of exile, but they are also soon to hear of the coming spiritual refreshment of God. 
Isaiah prophesies later in chapter 44, fear not because I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. God commits to refresh his people spiritually by promising that the Holy Spirit will come and indwell them. And the purpose of God committing to impossibly supplying their every need is found in verse 20, so that they will unmistakably see his all-providing hand. They get the grace, God gets the glory. Two brief takeaways. Prayer. Are you crying out in prayer by faith, believing that your God is able able to supply your every need to live faithfully for him here, now. Your God is faithful. He will never forsake you. Keep praying, keep crying out in line with his, heard, his word. Take heart, brothers and sisters. Your God hears you and has committed to supplying you your every need. And we can know this for sure since God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Therefore, he will also with Jesus graciously give us all we need to live in ways pleasing to him. Second, God's commitment to spiritually refresh his people has already been realized in the sending of the Holy Spirit to live in his new covenant people. So let me ask you, when you're pressed into the corner, are you turning to his provision of power? Or are you leaning on your own resources? Brothers and sisters, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. There is divine, limitless power living in you to refresh you and empower you for what lies ahead. There is trouble coming. Live long enough. In this brokenness, trouble is coming. You've experienced it, and you will. And trouble can often bring these, along with it, the experiences of fear and anxiety and hopelessness. Despair pressing us into the corner with few options for where to turn, but our God wants us to know that we can count on him. He's not only the great sovereign of all of history, but he's our God and we are his people. We're his chosen, claimed, and kept people, and he loves us so much that he is committed to giving himself to us, his presence, his strength, his power, his perfect support. And our Redeemer has committed to conquering every obstacle in our way to worshiping him and enjoying him. And God is committed to impossibly supplying our every need so that we will unmistakably see his all-providing hand. We get the grace and he gets the glory. So brothers and sisters, our great God has made rock solid, assured commitments to his people, guaranteed 
in the blood of Jesus, we can be confident, we can be hopeful, we can be at peace in the midst of anything because our God is with us. Let's do this together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gracious, hopeful, comforting, empowering passages like this. The Old Testament is your word to your people. And so I pray, Lord, that we would not walk away unchanged, but through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within us, would we be changed by this word? Would we be eager to have it continue to, to resonate in our hearts and minds as we go out this day and this week? Help us to be those that do this together as you have called us to, to encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. We thank you for your grace and kindness seen most clearly in Jesus toward your people. We love you, we thank you. It is in Jesus' name we pray.